You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 36, Sinking the HMS Gas Bay. Now, last week we looked at a few of the internal colonial disputes in the Carolinas. Those issues involve fights between people and the colonial government. This week, Rhode Island takes on the British Navy directly when colonists sink the HMS Gaspi. And just at the outset, I'll note that there is some debate whether to pronounce it Gaspi or Gaspe. I'm going with Gaspi, but if you care, don't take that as the final authoritative answer on the pronunciation. Now, following the repeal of the Stamp Act and most of the Townsend Acts, Parliament focused its attempts to assert authority over the colonies through tougher trade enforcement. Smuggling had always been common in the colonies, as historically London had not made much of an effort to enforce the trade laws. Almost no colonists argued that Parliament lacked authority to create and enforce some trade laws, but strict enforcement of existing laws made profitable trade almost impossible. As I've discussed over numerous past episodes, After the end of the Seven Years' War, we see the British government focusing more on enforcement. It began as a way to raise revenue, but by 1770, enforcement seems more about asserting authority than actually raising any money. As we saw back in episode 29, London had placed an American Board of Customs in Boston responsible for enforcing trade laws and collecting tariffs. It then sent in regulars to back up that board eventually leading to the Boston Massacre, and then pulling the soldiers out of the city again. But the withdrawal of troops did not mean officials had given up on trade enforcement. The North Ministry and Parliament, with the agreement of the King, all felt that colonists could no longer get away with ignoring the laws of the empire. Even if authorities had to watch their step on land, the British Navy still controlled the seas. Throughout the 1700s, Britain had regularly been at war with one country or another. The downtime between wars presented its own problems. A peacetime military was expensive, yet keeping ships and crew active meant they would be ready for the next war. Otherwise, ships sat in dock, rotting away, sailors found other jobs, and officers sat home on half pay with little to do. Putting a few naval vessels to work controlling smuggling seemed like a better alternative. It kept the ships and men active, raised some revenue, and reminded the colonies who was really in control. Since the end of the Seven Years' War, the Navy headquartered in Halifax deployed dozens of ships patrolling all around major North American ports. Despite increased enforcement, many merchant ships still found smuggling profitable, either bringing in goods from foreign ports in violation of trade laws or simply trying to avoid customs duties. If caught, officials could seize a ship and its cargo. If condemned by an admiralty court, it would be sold at auction, along with additional fines for the ship's owner. Since the officers and crew of the naval vessel capturing such a prize received a share of the sale price, they had good incentive to pursue smugglers with zeal. Now, when we talk about colonial ports in New England in this era, we tend to think about Boston, which was the largest port but the coast was dotted with many ports, large and small, all along New England's coast. Merchant vessels could land at any of them, or even try to offload their ships via smaller boats 
at some remote beach. Rhode Island had a very busy port at Newport and also had a fair share of merchants who made every effort to avoid paying tariffs or who wanted to trade with foreign colonies in violation of British trade laws. The people of Rhode Island had a history of challenging British authorities in their waters. In 1764, following passage of the Sugar Act, a British Navy ship, the HMS St. John, patrolled waters around Newport looking for smugglers. While a ship was docked in Newport, some event happened that is rather vague. Different accounts say that some of the ship's crew stole property. Others say the crew came ashore either to impress local sailors or capture deserters, resulting in a massive brawl with local sailors on the docks. As local authorities attempted to make arrests, the St. John attempted to leave port. Locals occupied Fort George on an island in Newport Harbor. From there, they fired the fort's cannon at the St. John. No one was hit, and the locals fled the island before a larger Navy ship came in range, but the incident made clear that colonists in Rhode Island were not afraid to attack authorities with guns if provoked. The following year, in June 1765, shortly after passage of the Stamp Act, the HMS Maidstone landed a press gang in Newport Harbor. Locals fought with the press gang, and a mob of about 500 men seized the launch craft that had landed, dragged it to the commons, and burned it. I've also mentioned the Liberty, the ship that authorities seized from John Hancock in Boston. The seizure of this ship had led to the Liberty Riot of 1768 that I discussed back in episode 29. By 1769, the British Navy was using the HMS Liberty to enforce trade laws. The crew of the Liberty forced two small Connecticut boats to land at Newport for suspected smuggling violations. The captain of these boats accused the crew of the Liberty of abusing him and his men. Witnesses from Providence had seen the Liberty fire on the unarmed boats after the captain apparently resisted allowing the Navy to board his ships. An outraged mob formed, forcing the crew of the Liberty off the ship. They then took the ship out into the harbor and set it on fire, destroying it. In all of these cases, authorities attempted to bring criminal charges but no one would identify any of those involved. Like Boston, the local courts in Newport were stacked with people who would not indict or convict anyone for criminal acts against the hated authorities. Further, if anyone attempted to cooperate with prosecutors, they might find themselves with a nice new suit of tar and feathers or some other punishment. As a result, locals felt comfortable using violence against the Navy when provoked. On the other side, naval officers tended not to be the most politically sensitive individuals. A ship's captain ruled his crew by fear. A captain kept his men in line by flogging or other painful punishments for infractions of the rules. Officers tended to show the same authoritarian contempt for civilians as well. British crews were not afraid to use violence against civilian crews that displayed any resistance to their orders. Even for legitimate merchants, a stop at sea could delay a voyage for hours. A decision to force the ship into docks could mean a delay of several days. The level of harassment or strict adherence to the rules was largely a matter of discretion for the ship's captain, and different officers handled their responsibilities in very different ways. A Lieutenant William Duddingston, commander of the Gaspee, 
quickly gained a reputation as being one of the worst, at least from the perspective of the colonists. Duddingston was in his early 30s at the time, and he came from a minor Scottish aristocracy that had fallen on hard times. He took command of the Gaspee in 1768 and had been using Philadelphia as a base as he patrolled the waters up and down the East Coast. It's not clear why Duddingston acted especially aggressively in his enforcement of the trade regulations. Perhaps he was bucking for promotion. Perhaps he appreciated the prize money from seized vessels. As a lieutenant, he made only a hundred pounds sterling per year. In some years, he nearly doubled his annual income with prize money from seized ships and cargo. Whatever the reason, Duddingston went after everyone, even the most politically powerful families and operators of the smallest ships did not escape his strict enforcement of customs laws. Duddingston also apparently had an attitude treating all civilians with contempt. On several boardings, his men beat up ship's captains and crew, presumably for resisting in some way. He quickly developed a reputation for harassing local ships, boarding even small packet boats moving around the bay, demanding papers, and wasting everyone's time. A British Board of Inquiry later described it as, quote, intemperate, if not reprehensible zeal, to aid the customs service, end quote. While in the waters around Philadelphia, Duddingston apparently got into several fights. There's one article at the time about him beating up a fisherman unprovoked, although the article is written by the fisherman, so we only have that one side of the story. But given there are many such stories, it seems Duddingston was quite comfortable beating up locals if he thought they did not give him the respect he deserved. The HMS Gaspy itself was a rather small schooner with a crew of only around 20 to 25 at most times. It had six cannon as well as a few swivel guns. It was built as a small, fast ship designed to run down merchant vessels, not fight other ships of war. It was able to move at a good speed for the day and travel through relatively shallow water, and it was sufficiently armed to intimidate any virgin vessel it encountered. The Admiralty had ordered the Gaspee and five similar ships built in the colonies in 1764, primarily for the purpose of customs enforcement. The Gaspee had been in continuous use since that time, patrolling waters from Nova Scotia to Philadelphia, and it had only one commander before Duddingston took command in 1768. In early 1772, Duddingston began to focus his attention on the waters around Newport. In addition to treating merchants and captains with contempt, he liked to show his contempt for local government officials as well. Naval vessels patrolling colonial waters typically presented their credentials to local authorities before searching and seizing merchant vessels. Duddingston never bothered with this. Some who encountered the Gaspee at sea claimed there was nothing to identify it as a naval vessel. Some merchants initially thought they were being attacked by pirates. In February, the Gaspee seized the Fortune, a small sloop illegally carrying sugar and rum from the West Indies. Duddingston determined that this was illegal smuggling and ordered the ship and its cargo seized. There was nothing particularly remarkable about this seizure, other than the fact that the ship was owned by the Green family a wealthy and powerful merchant family in Rhode Island. One of the owners was Nathaniel Green, a future general in the Continental Army. 
and some people point to this event as one that helped set Green on the path toward joining the Patriot cause. The Gatsby spent the spring harassing ships, even small fishing vessels, often seizing the ship and hauling the occupant to Boston for trial. As merchants began reporting more seizures of ships, they looked to the colonial government for some relief. Now, unlike most colonies, Rhode Island had an elected governor who had to be responsive to the people or suffer the consequences at the next election. Rhode Island Governor Joseph Wanton sent Duddingston several letters demanding that he produce his commission to engage in customs service. Now, as I said, as an elected governor, Wanton was more inclined to back the popular will rather than dictates from London. But it also meant that British officers saw him as a colonial political hack rather than a representative of the crown. Duddingston simply forwarded the governor's letters to Admiral Montague, his commander in Halifax, without responding directly. Montague backed up Duddingston, essentially telling the governor that Duddingston was doing his duty and the governor should do his duty by assisting the Navy and not annoying its officers. Both the governor and the admiral sent copies of all correspondence back to London trying to get support for their positions. But before London could act, the colonists decided to put an end to the Gatsby's activities. On June 9, 1772, a small packet sloop named the Hannah made a run from Newport to Providence. The Gatsby attempted to approach her and board her. The Hannah's captain, Benjamin Lindsay, knew the bay much better than Duddingston. He took the Hannah over a shallow area that his ship could clear, but the larger Gatsby could not. The Gatsby became stuck on the sandbar, and the Hannah escaped while the Gatsby had to sit and wait for high tide. Captain Lindsay then arrived in Providence and informed others about what had happened. They sent out a town crier to call a meeting of locals. A group of men assembled at a tavern to discuss how to deal with the Gatsby once and for all. Around 10 p.m. that night, a group of armed men in eight longboats rowed out to the Gatsby using muffled oars to avoid detection. A sentry aboard the still-grounded Gatsby hailed the men, who did not respond. However, the sentry's actions alerted Lieutenant Duddingston, who appeared on deck, only half-dressed, to demand an answer from the approaching ships. The answer he got was a bullet in the gut. Some accounts say that the attackers announced that the sheriff was in the party and that he had a warrant for Duddingston's arrest. They shot Duddingston only after he refused to allow the party to board and serve the warrant. Another account says they only shot him after he struck one of the attackers with his sword. Whatever the initial encounter, the men stormed the ship and before the crew could mount any serious resistance. They forced the crew below deck, at first, Duddingston remained on deck, bleeding to death, but after a short time, they carried Duddingston below deck and treated his wounds. They also removed some of the ship's papers. The attackers then collected Duddingston and his crew and removed them from the ship. They left them on shore near Patoxet Village, the nearest settlement to the ship. Later that night, shortly before dawn, the attackers set the Gatsby on fire. They burned it to the waterline and the exploded powder magazine assured the ship's complete destruction. Now, burning a naval vessel and shooting a British officer were not things that authorities took lightly. Such an attack was treason, an act of war against the king's representatives. 
earlier attacks on British naval property had not involved shooting an officer. So the Gatsby incident created a whole new level of concern about law and order in the colonies. Now, Governor Wanton, eager to stay in the good graces of those in London, but not overly concerned about bringing the criminals to justice, issued a reward offer of £100 sterling to anyone with information leading to the arrest of anyone involved in the attack. Later, King George issued a proclamation offering a ward of £500 sterling. Although many were well aware of those involved, no one came forward to implicate anyone. Even if someone objected to the attack, knew the perpetrators, and wanted the reward money, they knew that snitching would result in a mob attacking them and destroying their property, if not causing great bodily harm or worse. No one seemed willing to take that risk for the possibility of even a rather generous award. Lieutenant Duddingston himself refused to speak with any local authorities about the attack. He probably did not trust them to do anything anyway. Since he had lost a ship, he faced an automatic court-martial. He knew that any statements he made would be used against him. Duddingston's court-martial took place in England a few months later. The court completely acquitted him, and Duddingston received a promotion to captain shortly thereafter. Despite the promotion, Duddingston did apply for a pension that year. His wound required time for rest and recuperation. A month after the attack, one of the sailors on the Gatsby got a job on another ship and recognized Aaron Briggs as one of the men who had seized the Gatsby. The ship's captain got Briggs to confess and to implicate two other leading merchants. Governor Wanton attempted to arrest Briggs, but the captain refused to allow the sheriff to board his ship. I suspect the captain feared that once in the hands of the colonists, Briggs would recant or suddenly disappear. The king ordered a royal commission in Rhode Island to resolve the matter. The commission was supposed to find out who was involved and ship them back to London for a treason trial. But after six months of investigating the matter, it came up relatively empty. It even dropped charges against Briggs. It turned out the captain had extracted the confession from Briggs by threatening to hang him if he did not confess. Under such circumstances, the commission deemed the confession invalid. Further, the commission could not identify a single person involved in the incident. One of the big problems for the commission was that Governor Wanton served as one of the commissioners. He attacked every witness and seemed to shut down every line of investigation as best he could. As an elected governor, he knew his political future meant trying to keep prominent citizens from getting caught up in the legal mess over this incident. He wanted the matter to go away as quickly as possible. In the end, the commission reprimanded virtually everyone involved. The governor, for not pursuing the criminal investigation with enough zeal prior to sitting on the commission, the captain, who extracted Briggs's confession and then refused to turn him over to lawful authorities, and Duddingston for exercising too much zeal in enforcing customs laws. As I said, though, the Navy did not blame Duddingston for anything, and after his mandatory court-martial and promotion to captain, he went on with his career. He would return to active duty in 1776 and go on to become an admiral years later. While very little came from the incident directly, the Gatsby affair created even more divisions between England and the colonies. 
London saw the incident as yet another egregious example of colonists' refusal to accept lawful authority, instead engaging in mob rule. The incident increased colonial fears that England was willing to remove accused criminals to London for trial, denying them the right to a local jury trial. The sinking of the Gaspee turned out to be a relatively isolated incident in 1772. It did not inspire copycat attacks on the Navy, nor did London overreact by implementing punitive measures against the colony. This allowed the relative calm to continue for another year and a half. Next week, we're going to take a look at Committees of Correspondence and the Colony of Vandalia.